0: who rules over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize you are listening to ach i'm and your host today it's thursday so it's time for our weekly get together with my dear friend dr peter hammond let's bring him up right now peter are you with us i'm with you thank you andrew thank you peter and what peter has for us today is a presentation entitled the real story of the world that was stolen from us so peter where would you like to start us off today please
1: Andrew, November's filled with all kinds of anniversaries, and of course, we've remembered uh, the uh, Declaration of Independence of Rhodesia, and I've had a number of Rhodesia Association events uh, this uh, last month, uh, because I'm the chairman of the Flame Lily Foundation, Cape Peninsula, and uh, a lot of responsibilities in Rhodesia Association. And uh, Rhodesia Association has been going since 1979, so 42 years, and... uh, Uh, This year, amongst other things, we also did a memorial service in the Retirement Hotel where Ian Douglas Smith, the last Prime Minister of Rhodesia, passed away back in 2007. We prepared a memorial plaque put on the wall, and I was doing um, memorial service for that and, of course, for our armed forces on uh, different events, 11th and 11th. And could only think of the civilized world, the paradise that's been stolen from us, you know, our world was stolen from us. I was brought up in such a different world. And I'm only 62. I was born 1960. But I was born in another world, effectively. I was born in in a world, born in Cape Town, raised in Rhodesia, where there was respect for life and property and respect for authorities and elders and respect for culture and beauty and uh, the rule of law. And, and you know, just discuss our schools. (laughs) We were so neat, so smart, so clean. Every day, shoe inspection, shoes polished, uh, hair inspection, hair off your uh, collars and off your ears, and fingernail inspection, everything clean, neat, and so on. Uh, Everything had to be well done and organized. Do you know, we didn't need to chain our bicycles. We didn't need to lock our bicycles. Bicycles were safe. You could park them anywhere, not just at school and the school grounds, but at the shops downtown anywhere. Uh, Bicycles back when I was growing up didn't need to be chained or locked. And your backpacks and your suitcases, briefcases, you could leave them outside the hall when you went in or outside the classroom or when you went to play in the school grounds. You didn't have to lock them up in lockers or something like uh, I believe the Americans do. Um, We just put them down and there was so little crime that you didn't need to worry about it. I never had the experience of being locked out of home. My children have had the experience of being locked out of home, but but uh, I never did because growing up, if the front door was locked, it went round the back door. <laughs> and uh, the back door was never locked, but if it had been, I'd just climbed through a window. We didn't used to have burglar bars as security gates and all of the rest that's now become part and parcel of living in a free world. So uh, some time ago, it was actually 2014, Uh, My daughter was singing in the Cape Town Youth Choir and we were in a beautiful location, the place of the book, which uh, used to be the um, centre of the uh, university campus for the uh, Cape of Good Hope uh, University Campus, which since was amalgamated into the University of Cape Town because Cecil Rhodes was very much into amalgamating and consolidating and taking over things. Well, in this beautiful venue... Uh, where they were celebrating um, our history and culture. One of the guests of honor, I use the word in inverted commas, was President F.W. de Klerk, our previous president, the one who betrayed our country. He's known as a Volksfrei or people traitor um, amongst uh, most of our folks. But he was there and he stood up during one particular time, I think just before interval, and he said, who here are the born frees? Now, understand the terminology in Africa, uh, anyone who is born after Independence Day is considered born free. And so uh, in South Africa, they're regarding that as 1994. 1994, when South Africa had the fraud failure and farce of a election uh, where uh, 104% of the electorate voted and all sorts of bizarre things like that, even though they found containers, as in shipping containers, 20-foot containers, filled with unopened ballot boxes afterwards. So um, it was uh, quite a fraud, quite a lot of failure, quite a lot of farce. And I believe some people in America are discovering what a free and fair election is after the State Department has been forced to get on countries all over Africa. But I digress. So F.W. de Klerk stands up and says, who are the born frees? Now, what he's wanting is everyone under 20 to raise their hands because they've been born since Mandela became president. So they are the born frees. Well, I immediately raised my hand and I've got people around me, I don't know, you know, pull your hand out. Well, I was born free. I was born before burglar bars, security gates, armed response, born before locks and all the different um, motion sensors and everything else that's now come into our society. And I could walk to school without my parents guiding me. I could walk back right across the whole of Bulaway, uh through the centre of the second largest city in Rhodesia you could walk across town there and back without any sense of danger. In fact, I remember growing up in Rhodesia, it, it was such fun. You could go exploring, uh, especially on, on Saturdays. So I would put on my bush knife and my uh, water bottle and my bush hat and head out to the bush. I remember as a 12-year-old walking out to uh, Kami Ruins. And Kami Ruins, according to the map, was 14 miles. That's 20 kilometers outside of Bulawayo, And I walked there. And I walked back on a sat and explored the place. And on the way, uh, as a 12-year-old, I, I mean, I saw wildebeest and giraffes and buffalo, uh, zebra, all kinds of animals, um, amazing variety and you know, everything from the guinea fowl through to the uh, bush pigs. And uh, there they are, warthogs and so on, they're running around. And this wasn't in a game reserve. This was just outside the city limits. And uh, that was Rhodesia and, and my parents didn't know where I was going. And... Um, I just had to be back before the sun set or actually more like before the streetlights came on. So as long as back home before dark, it was fine. And I would do all kinds of exploration like that. Now, I would say that's born free. Now, these poor kids today, born behind burglar bars and security gates where they're not allowed to go anywhere except by being escorted by their parents and uh, it's considered too unsafe to even use public transport where their parents have to drive them to school, creating new... Traffic jams because of the lack of safety on the public transport. How can you call these poor folks born uh, under such bondage the born freeze? And, you know, quite aside from the fact of the COVID cult lockdown lunacy with masquerade madness that they were forcing on them in 2020 and 2021. But I was brought up in another world. You know, the churches were always open. And uh, I'm talking about Rhodesia and South Africa, where I could be walking or hitchhiking, and want a place for quiet meditation or prayer or devotions, I could walk into church, and many of the churches were unlocked uh, throughout the day, sometimes were unlocked throughout the night. When I was hitchhiking around South Africa, and um, as a um, new Christian and missionary, I didn't have much money, so I hitchhiked everywhere. So to get the 1,400 kilometers from Cape Town to Johannesburg, I'd regularly hitchhike. I'd hitchhike 600 kilometers from Joburg down to Durban, and um, I hitchhiked all the way around the country and, and across the borders even. So I got used to hitchhiking. I hitchhiked 140,000 kilometers. And in my hitchhiking around the country, uh, doing ministry work, I'd frequently be stuck for the night and I'd throw out my sleeping bag by the side of the road and, and sleep. Sometimes I slept in a park. Um, I rem- and never felt there was anything dangerous about that, you know, in the downtown. Uh, even in a city like Johannesburg, I, I remember sleeping in a central park because um, I didn't have a place to stay and just put my sleeping bag out and there were times that I woke up in the rain and uh, in the morning lifted up my sleeping bag and water poured out and I was soaked. And But these things happened. There, there were times that I was hitchhiking and it was raining and I went to the local police station and said, do you have a bed that I could sleep on? They took me to a cell and they left the cell door open. It was clean sheets, clean pillow and very nice. Police were very friendly. I could sleep in a prison cell. You couldn't do that today. And going all around the country, i slept in fire stations uh, all over the place. Uh, You know, it it wasn't a matter of of needing to uh, be able to um, book a place here and there. There were times that I was in the middle of nowhere, hitchhiking uh, in a small little village. And uh, I'd walk up uh, to uh, just any house, first house came across, walked up them, see they've got a big veranda, knocked on door and said, excuse me, would you mind if I uh, slept on your veranda? Got a sleeping bag and so on. Oh, no, no, please come in. They found a bed for me and so on. Uh, There was a time that I was hitchhiking through a little village called Port Alfred, and uh, there I came across – it it was starting to rain, so it was late at night, and at that stage no no petrol stations were open from 6 p.m. at night till 7 in the morning. So I knew I wasn't going to get another lift. It was getting quite late, Um, no traffic uh, on the road. So I walked up to a motel and knocked on the door, and I said to the reception people – do you mind if I sleep on your veranda? Because they had a very large veranda, and that should put me out of the rain. I've got to sleep bag. Uh, the lady said just a minute. She went and spoke. The manager came back and said, um, here's a key for room such and such. Um, no charge, you're our guest. Now, I don't know how often that would happen today, but i just give these examples. as This is another world. Absolutely strange. That not only did people friendly pick up hitchhikers, but they often provide accommodation. You know, you won't get any further tonight. Uh, Come and stay with us. And it was another world. The game reserves were real wildlife sanctuaries, free from poaching, wanky game reserve, Atosha, Kruger Park, some of the greatest wildlife sanctuaries on earth. And to travel there, it was like you were seeing Africa the way it would have been seen in the days of David Livingston, just untouched beauty, raw, um, wild and massive herds of elephants, herds of hundreds of elephants in some cases. And again, that's, that's a world that's gone. And my father would regularly send me to the shop to buy things, and uh, uh, quite aside from the fact that that included cigarettes, which I know uh, no eight-year-old or so-and is going to be given cigarettes over the count in most places anymore. But um, I would be uh, buying for my parents and uh, whatever they told me to get, with was milk or bread or whatever. And I didn't need to take money. And I didn't need to sign anything because it would just be put on a family account. And the shopkeepers assumed that even as an eight-year-old, I must have the authority of my parents, there was no handshake, there was no signing, there was no receipts, there's no forms. Uh, It's just just they put down, you know, whatever the cost was, 20 cents, 50 cents, and so on. um, And that would buy quite a lot of food. I remember my father stopping at the petrol station asking for 50 cents of petrol. Now, 50 Rhodesian cents was a significant amount of money, It was quite a few litres, and, in fact, uh, that wasn't ridiculous uh, because back in 1970s, the Rhodesian dollar was uh, stronger than the British pound and was three times as strong as the American dollar. So uh, the South African rand was also stronger than the British pound and stronger than the American dollar. I remember getting, for example, a five-pound note in the mail uh, from an aunt in England and uh, getting for it something like um, a three- Rhodesian dollars, 50 cents, uh, for five British pounds. Rhodesian dollar was stronger than the British pound. And, you know, we had hard currency. Now, you compare that with when a $100 trillion note, Zimbabwe dollar, couldn't buy a half a loaf of bread, $100 trillion note. And that's after that knocked off 16 zeros. So the hyperinflation in Zimbabwe, you know, somebody worked out that one brick in Zimbabwe in 2008 cost more than all the properties, all the businesses, everything combined at Independence in 1980. So um, it just lets you know that when they talk about born free and freedom and, well, uh, not really. Uh, we had different types of leaders. I remember the day when I was told that Ian Smith, Ian Douglas Smith, the Prime Minister of Rhodesia, was coming to the Bulawayo Club. Well, my father was in charge of the Boulevard Club. He had been a hotel manager all his life, and so they were in, in Boulogne. And I thought, real life, um, a real-life Prime Minister of a country let me uh, watch the, the parade or something. So I went outside, and I don't know what I had in mind. Maybe I thought of something like changing the guard at Buckingham Palace. But I was standing outside the Boulevard Club, my cat, Tim, uh, sitting on the wall, and down the road came a beat-up old Peugeot 404, Out stepped Ian Douglas Smith. I immediately recognized him. Even as a young 14-year-old boy, I knew what Prime Minister looked like and uh, from news and all of that. And there was no bodyguard. There was no aide de camp He didn't have a driver. I couldn't see a policeman anywhere up and down the road. Here we were in the middle of a war, the most hated man in Africa, they said. And uh, he smiled at me. He stroked my cat and he walked into the bulldog club and I looked up and down the street. Where are the police? Where are the bodyguards? Nothing. And many times that's the way it was. Ian Douglas Smith was very much like that. And when I got to know him well in the last 20 years of his life, we met regularly for tea, lunch, suppers sometimes. And radio interviews and and fellowship, even Bible studies and prayer meetings. So I I had a wonderful opportunity to get to know Ian Smith uh, in the last two decades of his life. Well, I brought up to him that time that I'd met him, and I said, you know, just a few years later, I was in Harare, what they renamed the capital Salisbury, and down the road came Robert Mugabe, as they said, Bob Mugabe and his silent whalers. Uh, there was Mugabe coming down with eight motorbike outriders, all traffic at the stop in all directions, several police vehicles, a truckload of gooks with rocket launchers. What are you going to do with a rocket launch in the middle of town? And heavy machine guns, PKMs and RPDs and so on. And uh, uh, he's in this uh, one of two, so he didn't know which one he's in, uh, darkened Mercedes-Benz armoured vehicles and uh, uh, soaring through town and thought this is bizarre. And I thought, no, that's every day. Uh, anytime. Bob McGobb goes anywhere, that's the way they travel. And people got shot for not stopping for the presence vehicle. All the v- vehicles had stopped in all directions when he drove past. And uh, there was even a, a deaf man who got shot uh, because he couldn't hear the sirens and everything from behind him, couldn't see the lights and didn't notice. And because he didn't stop the vehicle, they shot him off the road. And that's the, way the world today. But the world I was brought up in, very different. Uh, Ian Smith said to me that there's many a time he chased away the cook from the kitchen. There wasn't a guard at the gate, just him and his wife, Janet. They were the only people in independence, the prime minister's residence. And uh, there were times that he ignored his own government's rules, that you had to travel by convoy to go on the open roads endangered danger by uh, ambushes. And he would drive down to his farm at Saluki, sometimes on his own, without a bodyguard, without any escort, without being in a convoy. So he even broke his own laws on doing that. I got to know P.W. Boota, and I was very good friends with his daughter, Razan and uh, they were good family friends for, for many decades. Well, P.W. Boota, when he was uh, president of our country, he'd insist on always using his private car if he was doing private business. So he would never use the state vehicle for going to church on Sunday or going to his farm or going horse riding. And he'd insist on filling up his own tank with fuel. He wouldn't uh, use state fuel for a private uh, activity, nor would he use a state vehicle for private activity. I don't know how many heads of state have that kind of scruples and integrity as P.W. Botha And uh, uh, P.W. Botha's daughter, Razan uh, said that uh, she has two fathers. She has one father was the president. The other father is a king. And uh, she married a bodyguard of, of, uh, P.W. Botha, one of P.W. Botha's um, security detail, uh, Colonel Scott Vaskaki, Skok, policeman. Um, and uh, I confirmed with Scott as I, I helped him produce his book, Under Fire in South Africa, which is an extraordinary book about his adventures as a, a policeman and getting close to prison. And he said in all the years he knew uh, P.W. Botha, never heard a bad word, never heard an uncharitable word, never heard a... Um, um, harsh word from him, you know what a gentleman he was, and a man of such integrity, and uh, and how he was a person without fear, and refused to alter his uh, travel routine and things like that, which the security people wanted. And, and this is during a war when he's meant to be a target. And you just look at that and think, wow, what a different world indeed that it was. To give another perspective of what a different world it was, my mother, who was significantly younger than my father, uh, they were travelling. At one stage, uh, up the N1 from Cape Town to Johannesburg, and uh, this this is um, uh, obviously before my times. I wasn't there at the time. Uh, but uh, when they got to Lanesburg uh, for the night, they went to the hotel, and the hotel manager insisted on seeing their identity documents and their um, uh, proof of wedding. Uh, once see the marriage license before he let them book the same room. I mean. <laughs> How many hotel managers have those scruples today? <laughs> and when I went to the military, it was quite interesting. got my national call up and uh, I had to report to the castle at 5 a.m., uh, the oldest building in the Southern Hemisphere. And there we got our first roll call and uh, uh, shipped up by train. And when we arrived at Grahamstown Railway Station, we were ushered out of the train onto Bedford trucks. And as we got onto the parade ground at the 6th Salopan Infantry Battalion, the first words I heard from the Sergeant Major, most people would not be able to guess. The first words I heard from Sergeant Major was Anglicans, Assemblies of God, Baptists, Brethren. And we were divided up into our denominational groupings and affiliations. And all around the perimeter of the parade ground were tables with clerks writing out our details for the roll call of the various church denominations. And I was soon to learn that uh, church attendance on Sundays in the South African Defence Force was compulsory. And in addition, we'd be required to attend inter nominal chapel services at the base every week. And every morning we'd begin with prayer parade before roll call and the raising of the flag and, and the orders for the day. Well, even before we were issued with our R1 or FN762 rifles, we received our Bibles, which we were required to have on us at all times. It was part of our daily inspection. And the message from the Minister of Defence, P.W. Boote at that time, printed in a page, inserted in the front of the Bible, informed us, This Bible is the most important item in our essential equipment and our best weapon. And soon we learned that our voluntary tithes would be automatically deducted from military salaries. And and these tithes would not go to the chaplaincy, because the military budget already catered for that, but for the Bible fund. And not for our Bibles, those were a gift. Uh, But they'd go to the Bible study of South Africa translation and printing projects to make the Bible available to the various black nations throughout South Africa southwest Africa, and further north across the border. In fact, the South African Defence Force was one of the biggest funders of Bible translations into indigenous African languages in the world. At that time, Cape Town was the premier Bible-printing city in the world. They printed more Bibles than Cape Town anywhere else at that time. Well, I digress. After the Sergeant Major had alphabetically read out an incredible variety of church denominations, something like 70, there were still four men standing in the middle of the parade ground. Well, what are you, bellowed the Sergeant Major. And we all looked with interest wondering what on earth they could be because it seemed that every possible religious affiliation had already been listed. And one of the four stepped forward and said in a Heston voice, Atheists, sir. The sergeant major scowled and said, Atheists? Atheists! The communists are atheists. The ANC are atheists. Swapo are atheists. This is a Christian army. Send them to the Pentecostals. And instead of these men going to a 40-minute Anglican service or one-hour Baptist service, these four so-called atheists were required to attend the three-hour Pentecostal service every Sunday. And that's the way it was. It was just, uh, can you imagine something like that in our uh, armies today? Uh, Pornography was illegal, completely illegal. Um, Blasphemy was, of course, extremely illegal. I remember at one stage reporting a staff sergeant for uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, and the commandant himself, that's the lieutenant colonel in charge of the base, uh, had him stripped of his rank had drummed down to corporal for taking the Lord's name in vain. And there was a time when, when I had actually um, complained to the uh, commandant about this taking the Lord's name in vain. And uh, uh, in fact, it's, it's quite interesting that you are allowed uh, to meet the commandant, but um, I was so distressed by the abuse of God's name by some non-commissioned officers, I requested to see the commanding officer. As I was marching to the commandant's office, he asked me, Well, rifleman, what's on your mind? I said, Sir, is it against the Lord to blaspheme the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Yes, son, it most certainly is. He replied, Why do you ask? Is the Lord's name being blasphemed in my unit? Yes, sir. I said, I'm sorry to have to report to you that many corporals and sergeants are blaspheming the Lord's name. And the commandant's face darkened, and he said, I'm sorry to hear that, son. I will deal with this. And he dismissed me. Well, sure enough, the very next battalion parade on Friday, the commandant addressed the unit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the commander in chief of this army. He is the one who determines whether we live or die. Victory or defeat is in his hands. Your lives are in his hands. Any man that takes the name of the Lord, our God, in vain, is a traitor, and he will be treated as such. I will not tolerate blasphemy in this unit. Indeed, this commandant did not. Some NCOs were charged for taking Lord's name in vain and lost their rank. And we saw God deal with the stiff-necked. And uh, to be in a military where they had standards like that, absolutely extraordinary. It, this is another world. It's its a world that has uh, been betrayed. And I think we, we need to uh, stop and think, why is it that our schools are not places where we are taught real knowledge anymore. Why are our churches needing to be locked and have security gates and armed response and motion sensors and so on? What has happened to our game business? Why are so many of our monuments and statues and museums coming down? Why are so many of our heroes' uh, monuments and statues being pulled down? Why is there so much cancel culture? We need to uh, think again as to what we had and what we've lost. Um, Just just thinking of the schools, you know, in school in Rhodesia, We weren't just taught normal academic subjects. Woodwork and metalwork was required. We had to spend at least a year in woodwork and a year in in metalwork, even if that wasn't your choice. We had to have at least a year of commerce. And we had bushcraft, where even those in the city, we would be shipped out for a week uh, into the uh, bush in a game reserve where a game ranger would teach us how to survive in a bush. In fact, one of our textbooks was Don't Die in the Bundu. I still have that book. Has been very useful throughout my life, and we were taught how to find water, how to make shelter, how to make fire in the bush, how to be able to survive tracking, anti-tracking, direction finding—all these sort of essentials. Which they don't tend to teach it in schools today. We had marching, we had cadets, we had shooting, two-two rifles and so on, and these were part of a normal schools in Rhodesia. That you were—you were taught respect, you were taught teamwork, you were taught all kinds of things that, that have stood this the, at me well throughout my life. And you wonder, why is it we don't have the peace and the safety and the beauty and the stability that we have uh, that we once had? Uh, part of our education, this was not an extramural, was ballroom dancing. And, of course, our schools in Rhodesia seem to have been almost all boys' schools or all girls' schools. We didn't have any coed schools that I know of. There might have been a few, but uh, not in my personal experience. So I went to an all boys school growing up in, in Rhodesia and uh, we were uh, teamed off Milton High School. We were teamed off with Evelyn Girls' School for ballroom dancing. So on the key days when we had to do ballroom dancing, again, this wasn't extra it wasn't a choice. You had to learn ballroom dancing. And uh, the girls would line up on one side, boys on the other, and whoever you're opposite, that's who you dance with. And uh, we learned ballroom dancing and we were taught Latin. I remember asking the teacher, sir, why aren't we learning Indebeli or Afrikaans? Why are we learning Latin? It's not like Latin's an African language. And the teacher looked at me with absolute disdain and said, if you don't know Latin, you're not educated. And okay. Uh, so we, uh, we were taught everything from the classics and the books that we studied as part of, of our schooling in Rhodesia. It included George Orwell's 1984 and George Orwell's Animal Farm, I don't know how many schools have that in, but that taught me a lot about communism and why we were fighting and why Rhodesia was making a stand against international communism. Of course, we had Shakespeare and we had uh, had Charles Dickens books and we had Jane Austen books. I mean, we we had real classics and and this was part of of being in school, was learning the classics. And I hear that some schools today have uh, garbage like Harry Potter. Uh, That's hardly an improvement. So there's so many things that we had that we were growing up in. And I miss that. I miss the peace and the safety and the beauty and the stability and the respect for law and order and the respect for life and property, and the respect for authority and elders and the culture and uh, the not having to worry about crime. And there's so many things and a respect for God and country. Why are these things being undermined? Well, you know, I think the one thing that we can can all note immediately is that uh, there is a, a serious way that that cultures actually commit suicide. And uh, we can see it. Civilizations commit suicide. And in my missionary travels, I have traveled to 42 countries. I've worked in 38 countries. I've been through eight wars and three revolutions in the course of my missionary work. And uh, uh, I can tell you there are countries that have totally changed. So, for example, Egypt. Um, is not the country it used to be. Do you know in Egypt, Egyptians are now barely 12% the total population. Uh, Egyptian Copts are Copters and Egyptian. Uh, Egyptians now make up less than 12% of the population of Egypt. Christianity is a minority religion, even though for a thousand years, Christianity, Coptic Orthodox Christianity was the majority religion for a thousand years. But the Arabs invaded and conquered in the seventh century, and they've oppressed the Christian Copts for centuries to the extent now that uh, uh, Christians and Egyptians are minority in the own country of Egypt. Exodus 23, verse 33 says, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare for you. And you know, demographics are destiny. And if anyone doubts that London could become Londinistan or that Europe could become Arabia or that America could become Ameristan, they've not considered what multiculturalism and mass Islamic invasion, migration, did for Egypt and what today we call Turkey. You know, for a thousand years, Byzantine was the greatest economic power, the greatest military power, the greatest political superpower in the world. Yet, on the 29th of May, 1453, the greatest city in the world at one time, Constantinople, fell to the Muslim Turks, who put the entire city to the sword, slaughtering tens of thousands of civilians, including 12,000 just Hagia Sophia, the church, the greatest, largest Christian church in the world at that time, Hagia Sophia, had 12,000 Christians slaughtered in it on the day of the 29th of May, 1453, when the Muslims took over. You may recall that when President Barack Hussein Obama walked around the Hagia Sophia and made a comment on uh, what magnificent architecture and culture Islam is capable of. Well, maybe it is somewhere, but the Hagia Sophia is not an example of it. It was built in the 4th and 5th century. And the Hagia Sophia is an example of Christian architecture and culture. And uh, also it was the site of one of the biggest massacres of Christians inside a church building. Was Barack Hussein Obama that ignorant, that ill-informed, or that callous that he did not bother to reference what the history of this church was, where it came from, who built it, and how many were murdered in it? Well, for over a millennium, what is today called Turkey, Uh, was, in fact, a vibrant Christian civilization, the Byzantine Empire. Christians today are a very small persecuted minority in Turkey. The Turks are now the largest unreached people group in the world. Do you know, for a thousand years, Christianity was the majority religion in Sudan, what today is northern Sudan. From the 6th century to the 15th century, Christianity was the official religion of three northern Christian kingdoms of Nubia, Alwa, and Makuria, later Datawa. For 900 years, the black Christians of Sudan successfully resisted the southward expansion of Islam. It is an historic fact that the Christian kingdoms of northern Sudan did not fall militarily, not at all. But through the continuous migration of Arab traders and Muslim merchants into Sudan, it eroded the Christian civilization as the influence of Islam increased. And as Sudanese intermarried with Arabs, Muslims came to dominate the marketplaces and the trading routes. And in time, Christianity was exterminated in northern Sudan. And 2 Chronicles 19.2 says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. And so we need to remember that demographics are destiny. And uh, this is how civilizations are stolen. Countries are stolen. The people of Egypt are now a minority in their own country. The, The Christians in uh, Turkey are a minority in what used to be a vibrant Christian civilization. The Christians uh, in Sudan are a minority in what used to be a Christian country for a thousand years. And demographics made that change. And Islam gained its first foothold in Europe in 1711 with the umayyad conquest of Spain. And then they advanced into France and in an epic battle near Tours in 732. They were defeated by Charles Martel, the hammer and driven south, back across the Pyrenees Mountains. It took 800 years to free Spain from the grip of Islam. Islam entered Eastern and Southern Europe in the 13th century, and the Ottoman Empire crushed and oppressed the Albanians, Kosovo, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Bosnia, Romania, and Hungary for centuries, Greece, parts of Ukraine, and Russia for centuries. In 1526, the Turks conquered Budapest, looted the city. They enslaved 200,000 Hungarian Christians and dragged them back to Turkey as slaves. It's understandable that the East Europeans, particularly the Hungarians, have been most vocal in resisting the latest Islamic refugee Trojan horse invasion. Their country suffered centuries of oppression and enslavement by the Muslim Turks. Now, Muslims are invading countries all over the world under the guise of being refugees and simply seeking peaceful asylum. And um, Albania, which is the only Muslim country in Europe, is apparently foremost in, in the people seeking uh, asylum in uh, Great Britain right now and coming across the channel. And a lot of young Albanian men, most of them Muslims, are coming into England being housed in hotels and uh, given better access to medicine than many British citizens are right now. Islamic jihadists are seizing the opportunity to plant their ideology in the West. And Muslim radicals have a definite plan to conquer the world. We shall soon collect in the name of the coming caliphate. We will say to you, these are our sons. Receive them or we will send our armies to you. And hundreds of thousands of Muslim migrants are coming across the borders regularly, sometimes not just in a year but in a given month. It's millions in a given year. This means that you have literally more people coming into England in a single year than Immigrated to England between 1066 and the year 1900. You know, just astounding the demographic impact that this is going to make. You think of the number of Angles or Saxons or Normans or Vikings that came to England. Well, their descendants number in the millions today. Where is this going to end? When demographics are destiny, this means that you can lose your culture, your country, everything. The Islamic State published a document entitled Libya, the Strategic Gateway for the Islamic State, where Islamic State ISIS exhorted Muslims to go to Libya and cross from there as refugees into Europe through Italy. Well, that's going to be harder now uh, with a government that's going to discourage it. But weapons from Gaddafi's arsenal are plentiful, easy to obtain in Libya, and Europe's got a long coast uh, facing Libya, and they look at these southern countries as southern crusader states, which can be reached with ease even by rudimentary boat, And ISIS have claimed that they've infiltrated tens of thousands of their jihadists into Europe by these means. And Saudi Arabia is building hundreds of mosques across Europe. And you can see huge amounts of artificial manufactured migrations to basically have the goal of destroying Europe. And this is artificial. This is manufactured. A senior Muslim imam, Sheikh Mohammed Ayed, speaking at the Al-Asqa Mosque in Jerusalem, declared, Muslims must use the migrant crisis to breed with Europeans and conquer their countries. We will breed children with them and we will conquer the countries and we will trample them underfoot, Allah willing. And so it's understandable that Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, declared, we are not facing a refugee crisis. We're facing a migration crisis. Let us not forget that those who are arriving here have been raised in another religion. They represent a radically different culture. Most of them are not Christians, but Muslims. This is an important question because Europe and European identity is rooted in Christianity. Is it not worrying in itself that European Christianity is now barely able to keep Europe Christian? If we lose sight of this, the idea of Europe could become a minority interest in its own continent. And indeed, it is possible that Europe could become a minority in their own country. I've seen this myself. We are now, in South Africa, South Africans are really a minority in their own country. In my city, Cape Town, myself and my children are amongst the minority who can say we were born in Cape Town. In fact, right now, we've got more people in South Africa um, that were born elsewhere than were born in our country. This is how demographics changes uh, countries and societies and cultures, and it betrays future generations. We won't save refugees by destroying our own country. Um, We shouldn't be able to do what we like with a country we inherited a country from our parents and our grandparents we have a duty to hand it on to our children and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren preferably improved and certainly it should be undamaged you cannot give away to complete strangers on impulse thousands of years of culture and Christianity and heritage uh, and uh, where we've developed astonishing levels of trust and safety and freedom and productivity and then Uh, see how we're told we've got to adapt to the migrants, not them adapt to our culture. And this kind of emotional spasm in response to guilt manipulation, dressed up as generosity, abandons our legacy and declines our obligation to pass on to uh, our uh, descendants a better society. It's like the enfeebled, wasted heir of an ancient inheritance letting the great house and the state go to ruin. There's no justice, there's no sense in allowing these things to become a pretext for an unstoppable demographic invasion, a revolution in which Europe loses its culture and its economy and merges effectively with North Africa and the Middle East. Europe is going to make, it's just about to lose, all the things which make it worth living in. And the Bible says in Judges 3 verse 1 to 2, These are the nations that the Lord left to test all his Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battlefield experience. They were left to test the Israelites to see if they would obey the Lord's commands. So Judges 3 makes it clear that, that the heathen are sometimes allowed into our areas in order to test us to see if we will be faithful to the Lord or not. Europe is in danger of falling to Islam. That's not just Europe. I mean, we could talk about other parts of the world too. There's an urgent, serious need for a new biblical reformation, a back-to-the-Bible reformation, a fresh spiritual revival. Only Christianity, true biblical Christianity, can defeat radical Islam, secular humanism, communism, hedonism. These are no match for Islamic jihad, but Christianity is more than a match. By rejecting Christianity, countries commit economic suicide, they commit spiritual suicide. By embracing secular humanism and welcoming mass immigration, Europe is committing cultural, demographic and economic suicide. By intermarrying with Muslims and building mosques and madrasas throughout the continent, Europe is betraying future generations to bondage. By rejecting God's law, Europe may fall under Islamic Sharia law. Those who forget the lessons of history are doomed to repeat its failures. Guilt manipulation, indoctrination have neutralized Europe. I've heard people say that the average European today would prefer to be raped or stabbed rather than called a racist. We need to rediscover history. Karl Marx declared the first battlefield is the rewriting of history, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn declared of Russia in 1917. We forgot God. And the Bible warns us in Judges 2 verse 10 about another generation who grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Secular humanism, heathenism, hedonism have gutted Europe morally, spiritually and eth- ethically, making it vulnerable to an Islamic and secular takeover. By aborting her babies, Europe is aborting her future. By secularizing her schools, Europe is condemning her youth. By paganizing her populations, Europe has perverted her society. By importing millions of Muslim migrants, Europe is committing demographic suicide. Demographic is destiny. Now, there's two extremes we need to guard against. The first extreme is those who say, there's no crisis. They don't see a problem. There's no problem, they say. They've got the head in the sand, you could say. Then there's those who panic and say, there's no hope. So both of these extremes are false. We must recognize the problems honestly and soberly. Man is depraved and rebellious to God and rebelling to his word. and Sin inevitably reaps tremendous trouble. But we must also recognize that God is sovereign and almighty. There's power in prayer. And the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. How can any Christian say there's no hope? We must wake up to the urgent, serious crisis. Most churches are asleep or even in apostasy. The world is rushing on its way to hell. Our prayer meetings are sparsely attended. And lacking in fire and fervor, most evangelical churches engage in little or no evangelism. Missionary vision is weak. And much of what's done in the name of missions has little to do with fulfilling the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must make disciples of all nations. We must teach obedience to all things that the Lord Jesus has commanded. We must understand Islam. We need to evangelize Muslims. We need to resist Islamization. We need to work for a back to the Bible reformation and a spiritual revival. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Europe must be won back to Christ. Europe needs a biblical reformation, a spiritual revival. Our vision is Europe for Christ. It's And it's not just true for Europe. It's true for America, Australia, New Zealand, all over the world. It's either God's law or Sharia law. It's either Christianity or Islam. It's either reformation or Islamization. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Let us look again at what's been stolen from us, the world, the society, the culture that's been stolen from us. And let's reclaim and regain an appreciation for what we've lost and work to build it back again back to you Andrew.
0: thank you peter and um you mentioned uh back when the barbara Lerner specters of that day uh, opened the gates and let the moors into spain and the reason that this is so important to me this week is every sunday Uh, For those of you that aren't aware, I do a program that's only available on my website, achshow.com, called The Traditional Christian Message. Now, virtually all of these have been written by Peter, and I read them out. Now, the one that I did this Sunday, just gone, was called The Great Siege of Malta. And as I read through it, and this was essentially protecting Malta, from Muslim occupation and the hardship and the faith that they held in the face of that hardship the Christians to actually read that through it was extremely painful to see what these people went through so that we today just allow people to turn up on a dinghy and put them up in five-star hotels it sickens me what these people did for the belief in their people, to how their descendants have repaid them today. Peter, your comments, please.
1: Yes, it, it is so sad and so serious, and we need to recognise this is an invasion. I think um, there was a book actually written by Robert Morey a while ago called Islamic Invasion, and it is an invasion, and it's deliberate, and this is not accidental. It's calculated. and This is not just something the Muslims are working on. It's something the globalists are working on. The globalists wanting populations more amenable to manipulation and uh, who they can get to vote for their freebies that they're offering and things like this. So the globalists are using this multiculturalism uh, to dilute and ultimately to replace and to destroy uh, the Christian civilizations that have been resisting them. And so we need to see the hands behind us. Uh, it's, It's not The migrants alone, it's not the religion or ideology behind them. It's the globalist agenda ultimately to multiculturalize because what they want is a classless, genderless, familyless, nationless world society. They want a classless world society, a global communism. In fact, so much of the goals of the globalists, I think you can see quite clearly, not just in looking at the Sabbatean goals of 1666 and of the Illuminati goals, which is the same, of 1776, uh, but of the Marxist Manifesto of 1848, which is again the same, And uh, but you've, you've got to understand that, that it actually aligns with Revelation 13, which speaks about a one-world government with a one-world economic system and a one-world interfaith religion, and uh, this is the goal of the beast. So I think we must see the fingerprints of Satan himself um, all over this, and while he may work through the Sabbateans and the Illuminati and uh, the Marxists, all of whom have overlapping goals, uh, but ultimately you can see this is a satanic agenda one world government, one world interfaith religion, and one world uh, economic system. And the goal here is basically the extinction, the extermination of freedom and choice and resistance, and uh, of course the crushing of the Christian church. And that's what's behind this. This is serious. And And, you know, while my nostalgic uh, trip down memory lane about um, a a more carefree, safe, more peaceful and beautiful, stable world, a world without litter and graffiti, a world where your property was safe, we didn't have to live behind locks and so on. Well, I think uh, that that should um, really uh, affect us. We should say, this isn't right. What we've got now is normal. Uh, That was more normal than what we've got right now. Uh, But we should not just say, what a pity it was stolen from us. We should work to bring it back. And there's quite a lot we can do in in both exposing. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. It's important that we expose. We need the information. We need information. But we need inspiration also to, to have a vision, because without a vision of people perish, that we can work to rebuild these areas. And we can. And, of course, some of us are working. For example, there's quite a lot of us in Cape Town working for the Cape of Good Hope Independence. There's people working for secession many of you in Britain working for Brexit to have it fully implemented where you can be free from the globalists, although it seems you now have a a Brexit government that has taken over again even while they give lip service to Brexit, Plainly, they're trying to bring you back under under the EU and uh, the globalist agenda, and you can see this economically in terms of the uh, the lack of border controls, lack of protecting your border. You can see it at many levels, and of course, the Americans can see it on so many levels as well with their border crisis. It's intriguing. You can see every Western country with Christian heritage is being targeted for massive invasion, corruption. The goal isn't just the dilution of their existing population, uh, but of their replacement. And ultimately, the goal is to have a globalist society where they've got the Communist Party of China type credit score, where you can have smart cities and so on, where you're effectively prisoners, where you don't have choice, where they can shut you down, lock you down, masquerade you, muzzle you, and instant platform you, and all arrest, rest uh, freeze your accounts, uh, enable you not to have a voice and not to have freedom. We've got to resist these things. But more than that, we need to work to rebuild the Christian civilizations that we had, except this time we should make them better. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And I've just got one other question, but before uh, we get into that, you mentioned Viktor Orban. I've said this before. Now, I appreciate people who do speak out against the dangers of immigration into their countries, but I've yet to hear one so-called nationalist leader, Viktor Orban, Georgia Maloney, Matteo Salvini, Um. Marine Le Pen. Not one of them have referred to Barbara Lerma Spector. And so this is something I do regularly. This is the most regular clip I believe I played on the show as a whole. It's one minute and 13 seconds. Here we go.
1: As we heard, there are people in Sweden who support Israel and have a deep sense of the injustice of the present situation. It's these people who give hope to those who still believe that things will get better here. One of them is Barbara Spector, a former American who made Aliyah and then 10 years ago, with the help of the government of Sweden, set up a non-denominational institute of Jewish learning with the Greek name of Paideia, here in Stockholm. She believes the current wave of anti-Semitism in Sweden will pass and that Jews have an important role to play in a country undergoing profound change.
0: I think there's a resurgence of anti-Semitism because at this point in time, Europe has not yet
1: learned how to be multicultural. And I think we're going to be part of the throes of that that transformation, which must take place. Europe is not going to be the monolithic... uh, Uh, societies that they once were in the last century Jews are going to be at the center of that it's a huge transformation for Europe to make they are now going into a multicultural mode and Jews will be resented because of our leading role but without that leading role and without that transformation Europe will not survive
0: Okay, so um, now I'll include the YouTube video link to that in the post for this show. But I wanted to close out by something that I touched on on Monday's show with Maleficus. I really want to get Peter's take on this because it was a wonderful trip down memory lane some of which I was able to experience but I'm a little bit younger than Peter I live in the UK things are a little bit different but certainly some of what he said just goes to show how good we had it in years past to what we have today but one of the things I remember reading historically you know studies in the Middle Ages and things like that some of my favourite period of history that I studied was how churches, uh, monasteries, were a place of sanctuary, that people could go for sanctuary and you know, armies could not go in there. This is a headline of the BBC website just over a week ago. Ukraine Monastery Raid as SBU Targets Russian Agents. Ukraine's security service has raided a historic monastery in Kiev in an operation it says was aimed at stopping Russian agents using the site for sabotage, intelligence or weapons. The Kiev Lavra Christian Monastery dates back to the 11th century and is a seat of Ukraine's Orthodox Church, the UOC. The church, split from the Moscow Patriarch, Patriarchate, sorry, after the Russian invasion. The schism was prompted by Russian Patriarch Kirill's support of the war. Despite this, some of the UOC's top clergy have been accused of still covertly supporting Moscow, using their position to influence churchgoers. The Kremlin said the raid was another attack by Kiev on Russian orthodoxy. So they're trying to make out that Russian agents were using the site for sabotage intelligence or weapons. But um, the that's in the text of the article, but the headline is far more revealing. The Ukraine Monastery Raid as SBU Targets Russian Agents. So they're targeting people themselves in a monastery. Peter, what are your thoughts on that, please?
1: Uh, absolutely shocking. And again, yes, churches used to be a real sanctuary. And uh, uh, I remember even... Uh, Traveling across the country and um, needing a place to spend night either in very cold or, or rainy conditions, and trying to door some church, normally an Anglican church, and would normally not be locked back in the 80s, even late 70s and uh, 80s. And um, I could go into church and uh, put my sleeping bag out on a pew or on the carpet, and, uh, and no no problem. And uh, you know nobody would dare have desecrated or stolen from a church, there was such respect for the house of God and for the word of God and the people of God and people in full-time Christian service. And by the way, in some parts of Africa, I still see that, where when they realize you're a minister of the gospel or missionary, there's great respect. And you get that from the police and army as well, generally speaking. Uh, But uh, I see in Europe, that's lost. And in many cases, you can see a hostility to Christianity. So uh, the fact that Churches are no longer sanctuaries and that the churches can even be targeted. Um, Absolutely shocking. But it just shows the tremendous shift that we've moved from a Christian society to an anti-Christian society. Back to you, Andrew.
0: Thank you, Peter. And we're going out with this show on December the 1st. So we're in that great time of the year with um, Christmas Day, of course. I mention that now because we are, or rather Peter will be doing his traditional Christian message that I will be broadcasting on the Sunday, which is Christmas Day. And of course we will be with you uh, up to then as well, although there is one date I know that Peter will not, uh, or a couple of dates that Peter will be unavailable. But uh, I just wanted to make a point that it is nice to know, although we're recording this a couple of days before, you'll be hearing this on the 1st of December. And Peter, any thoughts on December before we go?
1: Yes, there's there's really a lot to, to remember there, um, including the fact that, uh, well, December the 7th, thinking about uh, um, the uh, uh, real story and the treachery behind uh, Pearl Harbor attack, and we did deal with that in the previous uh, show, and the assassination of General George Patton, 1945, by his own government. Uh, what a scandal that is. Um, but, uh, of course, we need to remember the reason for the season, and there's so much in Christmas uh, season as we in the run-up to to really focus our minds on on the greatest event that happened in history at the incarnation when god himself came down to earth in the person of our lord jesus christ we will of course have special events and programs for all of those so i'm looking forward to those programs ahead thank you andrew
0: thank you peter and before we go could you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you
1: yes my personal email is peter at frontline.org.org ZA or ZA, Peter at frontline.org. ZA, that's my personal email. Uh, you can also access our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org Frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you so much, Andrew. God bless.
0: Thank you, Peter. God bless you also. Folks, you have been listening to the real story of the world that was stolen from us. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I'll be back with you at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.